empathy can be a double-edged sword. You can empathize with the right things. You also can empathize with things which people may need some corrective actions. If you have a bridge of empathy and authenticity, then the person will let you enter into their world. So it becomes much more as we talk, we're talking about tentative world, world of growth, world of possibilities, world of genuine human connections. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. For all the returning listeners, welcome back. For the new listeners, welcome. I'm glad you're with us today. Today's guest, we are speaking to Dr. Tayab Rashid. He's a senior lecturer at the Center of Wellbeing at the University of Melbourne. He is also a faculty associate with the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University and has over two decades of experience in strength-based clinical psychotherapy, resilience, and post-traumatic growth. He is a renowned expert in the field of positive psychology and mental health. He has worked with diverse populations, including 9-11 families, Asian tsunami survivors, refugee families, journalists in conflict zones, and mass shooting survivors. Dr. Rashid is an internationally recognized keynote speaker as he delivers keynotes to mental health practitioners and educators worldwide. He is the author of the widely acclaimed book, Positive Psychotherapy, which he co-wrote with Martin Seligman. Dr. Rashid is the recipient of the Outstanding Practitioner Award from the International Positive Psychology Association. You will be able to hear the depth of the knowledge Dr. Rashid has in this conversation. I'm excited for you to hear this episode as we really explore how the field of positive psychology can be blended with the topic of money, the impact money has on our lives, and how positive psychology can help enhance and increase our well-being, especially during uncertain times, uncertain financial times. It seems no matter who you are, we always face uncertain financial times. And during this conversation, we talk about how can we enhance our well-being during these times and really look to find our whole financial selves using the study of positive psychology. Dr. Rashid will be sharing his expertise and insight on how character strengths can help us navigate these difficult times. We discuss the relevance of character strengths to enhancing well-being and how they can help us find our authentic selves. Lastly, I just want to highlight how Dr. Rashid shares his experience on how embracing positive psychology with psychotherapy towards our financial lives can really help us achieve our financial goals today and in the future. Before we get into the show, I have a slight favor. If you have been enjoying these episodes, it really mean a lot to me if you could head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Thank you so much. Now, 
Enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Tayab Rashid. Welcome to the show, Tayab. It is my pleasure, Sean, to share my, as I said, quarter-baked or half-baked thoughts about things that I'm trying to understand. And I don't know if I fully understand. Well, I appreciate your perspective and attitude towards learning. And maybe that's what has allowed you to do the impactful work you've been doing, writing that wonderful book. I just appreciate this learning mindset that you have. Speaking of learning, I thought we would open up our conversation going back about 20 years ago when you were learning in New York City. I believe it was in Brooklyn. Can you touch on on this autumn day what horror hijackings, guns, yoga, and practicing as a shrink have to do with a big moment in your life that taught you a lot about, I guess, life in general? Sean, I will say that that one single event which lasted for about 45 minutes, in many ways, was a watershed moment of my life. It changed my perspective in following ways. I don't need to repeat the story, but I will sort of summarize it for our audience. I just taught a yoga class. I was doing my PhD. I had leased a new car. As I finished the yoga, very soon I found that Two teenagers asked me to sit in the back of the car seat, put a gun, and very soon they were driving at their own leisure and at their own pleasure, uh, crossing red, red lights. So, of course, I was panicked. And somehow, perhaps it was the yoga and the breathing that helped me to get to, to relax a bit. And once I got a bit... I uh, pulled myself together. I asked, I, I started conversations with them because coincidentally, at the same time, I was working in Jersey City at, at a drug addiction facility with the uh, young teenagers who have some therapeutic issues, with illegal issues. So I, I was dealing with them day in, day out. So I was not much afraid, uh, but eventually, long story short, I asked them after some conversation, I asked them, what are you good at? They didn't take it seriously, but I was that serious. I said, what are you good at, really? And they told me about music, and then we, I participated some on hip-hop moves in those days, while still the gun was at the back of my uh, ribs. Many years later, I've been thinking, and I've retold the story a number of times. Even today, if I am and, and, and retelling the story, I think... I still believe that we have spent a lot of time in social sciences and in many other disciplines asking and digging the question, what is wrong with systems, with individuals? And I absolutely do not dismiss that question, that presumption. And so it's a good one because think about whistleblowers, things about people who do some wonderful investigative works. And without their works, we would not have the uh, sense of social justice we have, more heightened one. But I think what we do is we spend a lot more focus on asking what is wrong with you, what is wrong with the system, 
And it somehow jives with our innate nature that looks for negativity, that looks for deficits. And it's, I say, Sean, that it gives sometimes us kind of a romantic pleasure. Think about this pleasure had much more accentuated for a therapist. Because I'm sitting in this seat and I, what's wrong with you? And oh, this is wrong with you. So that it looks like your wrong list of wrongs coincide with this specific disorder. And I'm trained like that. I wanted to know from this experience, when I asked them the question, what are you good at? Eventually, they actually got it that someone is really, they're not, he's too persistent. He's not going to get out of, of our bags unless we tell him what we are really good at. And just the experience was affirmative, motivating, trusting. And to some extent, I would say in sub- subsequent years, it has been tremendously therapeutic for me as a therapist, because I, let me again emphasize, I do not say that the wrongs, ills, disorders, symptoms, dysfunctions are not important. They are squarely important. We need to address them. We need to address them with seriousness and with serious solutions. But we need to put equal effort and equal attention for asking what people are good at. Because all of us, somehow, if we have survived, there's something that we did well enough. If you survived, lots of challenges. Other day I was doing a uh, presentation and uh, nearly 70% of US adults, the data is from US, experience in their lifetime one or more trauma. Not everyone develops, and less than 10% develop uh, sort of a full-blown PTSD. So somehow we survive. Sean, I'm interested that in that survival mechanism, in that resilience pathways, mm. how people overcome those challenges. Because if I can get a little bit clear um, of how they survived, how they overcame a challenge, that becomes, in some ways, and if it's a very narrow alley, I can and tread along with my clients to make it to slowly and gently open up more paths, more alleys into their own journey of healing. Thank you for that answer. So many different areas that we can go. And I just I just want to make a comment about that story with the, the individuals in the car, whereas it seems like most people in that situation, like the individuals who who stole the car and you in the car, would be full of resistance and expect you to meet them with resistance, which then creates this fight. Whereas it seems like your ability just to kind of see them with your simple question, what are you good at? I guess simple in short amount of words, but very complex in, sen- in the sense of what it does to us. But my point is, is that your ability to see these people in that fight moment, I'm sure they were in that fight or flight moment or fight moment, but it was able to disarm them and reduce the resistance to some degree where you weren't hurt, they dropped you off, they actually told you somewhat what they're good at. And when I heard that story, it made me really think of your field for sure as a psychotherapist. Traditionally, when we, like you said, we focus on more of the deficit side, but also my field as a financial planner where we're always focused on not always, but largely 
What are you not saving enough? What are you not doing well enough? What do we need to do to make you better in 30 years? My question then is, for people like yourself, psychotherapists, who are trying to help heal someone, someone like myself, financial planner, who are trying to help people feel financial satisfaction or financial well-being, or anyone else who's trying to help facilitate human behavior change, what can we learn from the power of being seen, heard, and asking these questions? What are you good at? A wonderful question. Being seen, being heard, also being expressed. And eventually, to adding another part to your question, to accentuate, to build on mm. what you're good at. Why it can be so motivating, why it can be powerful in financial, in many domains of education, technical domains of life. Because let me ask you from a perspective of empathy. Sometimes I ask um, when my clients, and I say, I do this, this exercise with them, and I ask them, and when they have some troubled relationship with their loved ones, especially if it's not adult and have they have children, and I say, so imagine whatever way you speak with your children or with your loved one or with your colleagues or even with your friends, would you like to be spoken by them to you, to yourself? So switch it. So just mental exercise or ask whatever you're saying is making sense to them or what, however you're saying is making, making sense to them. And if it's not making sense to them, what is getting into the way? And what is what often comes up from our more detailed discussions is that sometimes we do this kind of a sandwich practice, start with a positive, then load it with, you know, the feedback in, in corporate culture, start with a positive, load it with the lots of negatives, and, and wrap up with a kind of a superficial positive. I think uh, we all have, uh, you know, most of us have an authenticity chip. If I'm sincere with you, Sean, it doesn't matter. Yes, sometimes there are cultural and linguistic other barriers, but somehow you can see this person is authentic and genuine with me. So by asking this question, what are you good at, in a genuine, authentic, human, interpersonal manner, you are actually letting the other person uh, know that how much they are interested in you. One of my supervisors said to me during my training that make sure that even though it's not always possible, make sure that hour of therapy with your client is the most important hour in their life for that week or by week, even ever. So that, so I make that hour very, very special. And in order to make that hour, I make that relationship, that question very authentic. So when you come from a place of authenticity and genuine curiosity and interest in knowing what they're really good at, you actually trigger their mind to start thinking because we are all, most of us are already raised on this steady diet of our parents tell us what you should do. Our teachers and our mentors tell us what we should be doing. Even look at the public health messaging. It's all about, we, you shouldn't do this, you should do this. 
And and again, I, I'm not saying those messages are not important. Those are important messages, but they they need to be counterbalanced with things. Someone who should be who should be at least telling us, you know, what small things you did right, mm-hmm. even in a day, small day, mm-hmm. small in a, in a day in a small acts. So those small positives can be very powerful in building the relationship. Once that bond is created in therapy and in other settings, in business, as you said, that bond allows the person to actually then open up. You know, I'm good at it, but I'm not good at it. So that the bridge of authenticity, the bridge of empathy is created. And I think that bridge, to sum up your question, that bridge is both relationship, but also through that bridge, you can then deliver skills. So the most uh, other second most important thing in my field is I just don't rely on relationship. People always say, you know, it's how you make feel good. Yes, it is important to make feel good. And that is the first step. But think about it, Sean, if you just empathize with people, empathy can be a double-edged sword. You can empathize with the right things. You also can empathize with things which people may need some corrective actions. So then if you have a bridge of empathy and authenticity, then the person will let them let you enter into their world. I'm good at this, but I'm not good at this. I have done this, and I sometimes use yet statements, comes from a growth mindset. I have mastered this, I have accomplished this, but I haven't, I have yet to do that. So it becomes much more as we talk, we're talking about tentative world, world of growth, world of possibilities, world of genuine human connections. This link that you talk about really, I think is resonating with me just because of the exploration I'm on right now, where... To me, this authentic manner that you talk about, that was the words you picked, is authentic manner for ourselves. I think for all of us listening, is, what I'm hearing is when we get to that authentic self, when we open up that armor, when the space has been created that we feel safe to, to unpack a bit of that armor, that's when we can absorb whatever skills it may be, whether it's in psychotherapy with you, whether it's a financial behavior change, that's when we can accept those behaviors. But I hear you say it's coming from like this whole version of us as opposed to this, I guess, maybe more so someone's telling me I should do this, so therefore I should do it. And I like how you said that we get these messages all the time and you're not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. I hear you saying it's not and or the other, meaning you're not saying don't listen to anyone, just listen to yourself. I think it's just this balance that comes along with this authentic self or the whole self. And I guess what I'm curious then is when, when you talk about this, whether it's a whole self or authentic manner, how have you seen integrating positive psychology, maybe specifically the character strengths that you practice, how have you seen that these tools, I know we broadly talked about how positive psychology helps, but maybe specifically, how have you seen that these methods, let's go with character strengths, can help us really find that authentic self or that whole self line within all of us? I'll give you a story for someone I worked with. How can these tools help? 
this is again a couple of years ago. I one of my first actually studies in positive psychotherapy. It was a randomized controlled trial where we had pitted one active treatment against positive psychotherapy. And we are in the first couple of sessions as a group situation. And one of our exercises was just to introduce yourself through a story, how you overcame a certain challenge and what was it like. So it was a young, young adults, very diverse sample. However, many participants were there in my group that day. They all went. Then the eyes are stuck on this one person. It's a female and she's getting visibly upset, nervous. So let's say I, I tried my best. There's no pressures. You can say pass, whatever you feel comfortable. And she said, what are you all looking at me? You want to hear my story? Let me tell you my story. When I was seven-year-old, this happened. When I was nine-year-old, this happened. When I was 11-year-old, this happened. When, and then list goes on. Sean, you and our listeners are, are, are smart enough to understand all of those things were not the high moments of our life. All of these were series of traumas and challenges coming from a marginalized background, an immigrant background. These were major traumas. It, I felt that maybe this positive psychology exercise of positive introduction of story of resilience just should not, I doesn't work for everyone and I should certainly not do. These, these plants were having some serious mental health challenges. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And I'm trying to compose myself because I'm afraid this is a therapeutic faux pas. Coincidentally, the person who went just before her was male, who shared the story that they wanted to become specific, wanted to pursue a specific career, but they couldn't because just before the starting university, they had unfortunately a terrible auto accident and um, which impacted their cognitive functioning. Their short-term memory was, was, you know, impacted and so they couldn't pursue whatever profession that training they, they needed to pursue to become that professional. So they had to settle and have to defer. Yet they said they, they are very proud of themselves for whatever they have to do. So he turns towards her and says, but despite all of these challenges, I see, I see you every session here. There are a couple of sessions so far. So what brings you in here? She took a pause and tears started streaming. She said, this group is my only hope. That was the end of the session. Just chilling silence. I took care of her, whatever I needed to do in my professional capacity. But... I knew that there is a sense of hope despite all these challenges. So, Sean, I ran with that hope. Next, fast forward, next couple of years, we had to do a lot of work with, the, with this individual, individual group therapy, many other supports as well. 
But I discovered that she has a strength, strength of hope. Also, she was very kind. So along, the, along this journey, we came to know she's very kind. And despite all these challenges, which were family related, one of my jokes with her was whenever she would, uh, the winter would come, this is in Canada, the winter would come, she would do the part-time work and, and most of her earning would go to, to support family one way or the other. And one day in the individual session, she came and she said, she had a big bag and I said, what is this bag? It has lots of lotions and creams. And, and, and she said, I bought for everyone. And I said, well, you don't even have money. And in a, in a, what, what is it? What motivates you? And, and, and people who actually don't treat you very well too. She says, I don't care. I don't think like that. And I know the background. I don't need to go into details. As I said, you can imagine, you can fill in the blanks of all the traumas, family-related traumas, childhood adverse events. So I am not thinking, despite this, these challenges, this person has sense of hope. This person has kindness. So I brought a couple of interventions, customized, personalized them, gratitude, sense of altruism, a couple of exercises, working in increasing strengths, but also in a nuanced way. Because yes, you can use your kindness in certain situations, but not in every situation. She was also very forgiving. Can forgiveness be in a, applied in every situation? No. Because in some situations, it could result in abuse. So we we did that, but it requires quite a lot of time for her to understand the nuances and appropriate adaptive use of strengths. Uh, let me tell you the last part of this story, which gives me still chills. A couple of years later, she finished the work with me, individual group, and a couple of years later, I got a email that Dr. Sheet, I am going to be graduating and I would really love you to come to my graduation because I've invited my family members. None of them are coming. And sometimes I would go to graduation of my clients as a as, as an associate faculty and as a staff member, I would sit on the in the regalia on the stage, but I wouldn't make any gestures because we honor confidentiality of clients. The moment she Stepped and it's uh, you know, our universe is big. And uh, the moment she stepped on the podium, the first step of the towards podium, six people in that one stage, including some faculty, some staff member, stood up and started clapping. And because they knew that every more, every step she was taking, there was tears. And we were all in, in tears. And these tears were of tears of joy. Now, university is very big. The commencement is very orchestrated. You just come in, shake hand, and go because there's lots of them. So they had to stop this ceremony because she came to all of us and hugged us. And, and I think from that, I was thinking about that day. There was a couple of years ago, that winter day when she said, I don't have any strengths. You want to hear my stories? This is what, to this day, 
I think that's the power of strengths. That's the power of positive psych psychology that can transform, but applied in an individualized, in a contextualized manner. So I hope I so sorry for a long rambling answer, but this this is very dear near to my heart, and I'm happy to tell you this person is flourishing now. Mm. I appreciate that story, and what I I find insightful about it is it's not just you're saying that you told her to be happy and she just put a mantra on her wall and was happy. You you held that space for her to feel like you said this isn't an and or positive or negative. It's both. You it seems to me you helped her create the emotional agility to go back and forth, but use that that hope as the anchor point to kind of pull her out. And I think that story really, really highlights the 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 significance of these character strengths. And I know with your background, you've done a lot of work with character strengths in your book that you wrote with Marty Seligman. Seligman. There's a big section on character strengths. You have papers on character strengths. For people who, who listen to that story and are interested in, okay, what are these strengths? Maybe can you formalize it a little bit more on what the research has found in these, these character strengths? So in a late term, Sean, from my advantage of my listeners, I'm actually going to do this after this in teaching, and I'm teaching adults, I'm teaching school principals, a big bunch of them today. And I'm going to ask them to think about a challenge. So everyone is listening to me, so think about a challenge. Something in the past and that um, you overcame. And most of you... If you are listening to this, there's no, most likely that you have experienced challenges, setbacks, failures. There's a part of our, our growth. Somehow we adapt to that, we overcome that, we negotiate it. Now, that is the process where, where is my sort of point of entry is into the character science. Because you overcame that challenge not by becoming less depressed, not by becoming less afraid, not becoming less anxious or less ambivalent. Actually, that resolution of that challenge somehow pulled some resources in you. And these are, folks, these are your strengths. Of course, we need, from a scientific, methodological perspective, we need to put them into a, into a more organized form. So one of the most amazing things which positive psychology has done, and especially big credit to the Institute, is the classification of 24 core strengths. So those 24 core strengths, uh, for those who have most of you may be familiar, but those who are not, they are divided into six clusters from cognitive strengths, such as wisdom. That includes strengths. So wisdom is a big cluster with wisdom and knowledge, and that cluster includes strengths like creativity, curiosity, open-mindedness, love of learning, perspective. There's another cluster of, uh, I won't, have, you can look it up online, so I won't take time. Another cluster of transcendence, which include gratitude, spirituality, and playfulness. Now, some of you will say that, yeah, but these are very culture-bound. 
Of course, no classification of books is completely universal. But I will ask you to think about, show me a culture which doesn't have a sense of gratitude. If people ask me, back to your question, Sean, what are these strengths? And then they say, oh, well, but there's so much cultural and so much social economic factors. But I say to them, yes, of course, the expression may change. And I'll give you a good example, a common example of kindness. So kindness, being compassionate, being nice to each other, helping others, doing good things without asking for them, is valued in every culture. Its expression differs. For example, in South American cultural context, kindness is also associated, among other things, with the notion of sympathia. That is how to de-escalate situation in a conflict. Beautiful notion. Kindness in a more contemporary Italian, Western European in some, is another expression of kindness is uh, this thing called uh, uh, cafe suspiso. I'm not saying correctly, but it basically translates uh, suspended coffee. Basically, you buy coffee for you, for yourself, but also person behind you, <laughs> which became a very viral rule. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kindness in uh, Chinese culture is doing things, but not uh, in Confucius way. It's doing uh, kind things, but not expecting reward. Similar along in, in uh, Buddhist terms. So that actually gives us a lot more leverage as practitioners because depression, anxiety, mania, they have very Eurocentric origins. And it also sometimes becomes a barrier in terms of stigma because those are very Western labels. And people say, well, you can say, you can find even findings, you can find research findings that the eating disorders or obsessive compulsive have some, some more prevalence in specific socioeconomic groups. Right. You in in, in other uh, cultural contexts, you have a conduct disorder or anti-personality issues according to social situations. So yes, the social cultural milieu is important, but strengths gives you this wonderful universality that yes, the expression may be d- different, but the cultures appreciate kindness. The cultures, most cultures appreciate gratitude. Tell me which culture does not have spiritual traditions. So what, I, in, a, in a nutshell, wrapping up my answer is, Sean, this, this character strengths are the fabric of our human being. This is These are what makes us human. Folks, if you are listening to me, it is because of we have been sitting on this wonderful legacy of human civilization when people were optimistic, hopeful, and they survived, and they cooperated. And despite being so many murders and so many negative things happening, there are more good things are happening. And those are happening because of global, universal sense of strengths. Let me wrap up my answer. Folks, we are created to be kind. To be most, and that's my belief. It's a process of uncovering it, refining it. 
we not created to become unkind. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So so I think it's the the what positive psychology has given is they've just given the labels and some scientific infrastructure to things which have been there for time immemorial. Yeah, that answer about character strengths and that statement, it's a fabric of being human being. I think it's really important. And I know that there's a field emerging, financial psychology, which borrows a lot from clinical psychology. And this idea of going into our past and you know, trying to make sense of childhood messaging that we unconsciously absorb, which is really, really, really powerful, or powerful in the sense of gaining awareness. But with that comes when you would know as a uh, in your work, the discomfort, and it might unravel some or reveal difficult times, difficult feelings. And it seems that sometimes people get stuck in this. I heard a, a coach, actually the Canadian national soccer coach call it, when you go in that area called the pit and you go down there, you learn a lot about yourself, revealing the complex layers of you. But he said, then it's our job to get out of the pit. And it seems to me that positive psychology or these character strengths can be a way to like have that strength to get out of the pit based on these innate, and I like that word you said, fabric of us, which what I'm hearing you say then help, perhaps gets us to that authentic self or that whole self where we then could potentially aspire to your story with that lady to that flourishing life. And why I thought it'd be interesting to have you on this podcast is because this relationship we have with money is exactly what you're talking about here is that Money can be a window into these discomfort areas about ourselves, but going in, doing the work and coming out, I think is life's work. And I really think that these character strengths can be a, a good opportunity for all of us, especially what, what we talk about here, a relationship with money. Now, you mentioned flourishing. A lot of people, when we sign up for jobs, work, we, we want to do it out of you know finding meaning and purpose. But the reality is we got to put food on the table, shelter, and it turns into this cycle of we're working and there's a lot of conversations that I have where people are no longer feeling fulfillment. They're feeling tired. They're feeling like it's a constant battle to get by from day to day. When you add this word flourishing, sometimes people are like, flourishing? Are you serious? Flourishing? I just got to, I just got to get through the day. So as we talk about like, feeling the, you know, the hard feelings, going into this pit, using character strengths to get out. What does this mean a flourishing life? Is it an aspirational goal or do we, how do we know if we're flourishing? I guess is my question. And how do we not make it bigger than it's supposed to be? So let's resonate with our, our listeners. So there are, our listeners are coming probably in a post-pandemic world, hopefully, post that is appropriate. <laughs> Phrase, they are feeling the the pinch on prices everywhere from gas station to grocery stores. Some are out of job or some are in jobs they don't like. Some are in relationships which they don't like, but somehow they can't find um, you know more fulfilling ways to restore them. So for them, a lot of lots of our folks, um, flourishing means. What the hell you're talking about, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, my couple of things. One is, I want to demystify the notion of happiness and flourishing 
and I think positive psychology has tried to do it, but we still need to do it more because we are seeing the onslaught of, especially from media, the messaging is uh, that happiness is is almost always equated with the, this the smile, smiles and sensory pleasures. Mm. From a may from chocolates to amazing sex to to vacations to buying new products, and it's relentless. And we are just scaling new heights of how to make our uh, consumers. So first of all, this, this is just a, just a moment of reflections, folks. If we can think about that, but let's do the, the, this ex thought experiment, which positive psychologists and many other, even Stoics has been doing. So how you'd want, you desire a car, you desire a specific accessory, even moving to a sunnier climate, all of these things, when you attain them, how long they will make you happy. So we need to understand that our happiness centers, especially our neural circuitry, when it's fired, second time it's the same stimulus will have rest, less return and third time less returns. You haven't eaten chocolate for, let's say, your you're exercising Lent and for 40 days you haven't eaten chocolate. And after you, you eat chocolate and you really enjoy it, they give you get you presented another one immediately. Your pleasure rating for that second uh, dose of chocolate would be less, third less, fourth less, fifth. At seventh, you'll say, you cannot eat anymore. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand, and but we don't, we and maybe rationally we understand, but somehow we fail to incorporate. So folks, any endeavor requires, any change requires effort and motivation. So assess your motivation, assess your, uh, what things you need to change. So if you are chasing this hedonic treadmill and this constant cycle of new products with this hope that they will make you flourish or happy, no. They will, but after a while. So what are the other ways? Research is very clear. Let me focus on relationships. Unfortunately, most urbanized centers in the world are becoming lonely centers of loneliness. I'm currently speaking to Sean from Melbourne. I, but I'm a resident, but my dear city is Toronto. And unfortunately, Toronto is one of the loneliest cities in Canada, because one of our reports, recent reports, suggested that more than half of the Torontonians live in a single dwellings, in, in a home, in a flat, or in an apartment which only one person lives. I'm not saying that all your happiness depends on others, but bulk of it is with others. Now, living with others is not easy too. So, so that's why we, rather than sustaining, resolving issues in relationships, we tend to go buy things because they're easier. We work mm -hmm. hard and it's, we say, or rather than uh, investing in a relationship, resolving problems, having difficult conversations, pumping your child, your 
partner, your friend, your family members to things which you don't want, not very exciting, but sometimes that are the relationship building blocks. We avoid them or we don't do that. that. So I think we need to also refocus our priorities to building those relationships. And in that dimension, where I will say psychologists, social workers, mental health professionals, even social entrepreneurs need to play a long, a big role in building relationship science, relationship, good relation. We are forgetting. We are so much glued to screens. Um, A screen cannot give you a hug. Folks, I mean, we have, Sean, we have, we learned in very hard way through terrible three years of COVID that how much we need others. Mm -hmm. Also, away from others. So having flourishing relationship and finding ability to deal with toxic or unhealthy relationship. That's the second bucket um, to flourishing and happiness. And the third one is we are getting away from nature. And getting away from nature means that we are moving less. When we move less, obviously sedentary lifestyle is not good for us. But I... I think nature is restorative. Nature is restorative to our attention. Nature is restorative to our senses. Nature is, you know what? I I had the wonderful opportunity to learn, and I'm still learning from indigenous wisdom. I spent some time with our indigenous elders in northern Ontario, and they said in indigenous communities, when you really are need to know who you are and we're grappling with something, you find refuge in nature. And nature then, nature is kind of an all-encompassing mother. So when we go away from the womb of the mother and and you're seeing the degradation in terms of environmental cost. So let me sum it up. It's uh, our obsession with gadgets. And not that I'm saying we need, I mean, we are talking through a gadget today. But we just need to know that there are limitations. Investing in relationships, individual level, and also institutional and social level, we need massive efforts on policy front, in building relationship science, in giving people at work, in families, in communities, how to not only build relationships, but to but to maintain relationships. People, we all make mistakes. How many there therapists and specialists are who are mistake management experts? How many people are very good at the process of forgiveness? Is anyone in who's listening to me has not made a mistake? Has I not been forgiven forgiven? So I think I cannot emphasize in building rigorous as rigorous as we, the world pulled all their resources together to build this vaccine for COVID, we need a vaccine for loneliness. And the last and but not least is nature. So these are my sort of overly simplified categories mm-hmm. for flourishing. I, I really like those the, your answers because you know the media, as you as you referred to it, I think has made the flourishing or well-being or happiness into something that the researchers didn't intend or they don't research. And the way that you explain it, 
you said in that in your answer, like knowing who you are, or you said something about who you are. And I think from my experience of reading the literature as I go through my education and even myself, the more that I've went to that authentic self, that whole self, knowing who I am, I feel this feeling of whether it's flourishing or well-being, whatever we want to call it. But it's interesting, I reflect back, and I think you had said reflection, and it's interesting that we could look far, far back in history, and you said the Stoics are reflection. You talk about Aristotle in your book, Carl Rogers, Maslow, all talking about reflection. But as I reflect back, it's really, yeah, those connections that are really meaningful moments in my life. And during COVID, there's a the neighborhood I live in, there's a few other dads we like to run. And you know, we followed the guidelines during the, the I, in Canada. I'm in Canada. It wasn't as strict as Australia. And so we were allowed to go for runs, distancing. But my relationship with those dads and nature, to your point, really changed as I found myself running all the time in winter. As you know, Canada gets cold. So minus 25 Celsius. We're running. But that struggle or that discomfort actually turned into appreciation for like, wow, this is actually, we're doing something hard. And then it goes and builds those character strengths. So I say all of this is that your message is valuable in the sense that I think at times this flourishing life or finding ourselves is a lot more affordable and accessible than we make it out to be. Where while the vacations are really fun and enjoyable, I'm not sure if they bring us to our whole selves or who we are as much as the reflection looking into ourselves, connecting with others and connecting with nature. I think the other thing is we need to also demystify that in order to be living a fulfilling, flourishing, meaningful life, we don't need, honestly, we need to declutter our mind. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure needs, oh, I need this, I need, no. Actually, you need to shed off things. Mm -hmm. And simplicity, that's why strikes were wonderful. So that we can, the more we can simplify both mental clutter, relational clutter, and the clutter in our environment, easier it would be. And the more important thing, the final thing is for flourishing, you need a few things, but do them regularly and change them because you will get used to something. If you Mm -hmm. run, or if you do certain things, you get you. We all get used to things. Mm-hmm. So you 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 add spice by adding some variety. I was working with a with a client had a bipolar issues, very manic, lots of energy. We use the I use a gratitude exercise and had some terrible relationship with with the loved ones, the family. But this young uh, male was, uh, we were able to come up with the intervention during COVID that he will go on bike. But every day, there'll be seven uh, seven days of the week, seven different routes. Mm. And every day he will pause and take his mobile phone and and if anything that would be meaningful to him, will take picture. By the end of the first month, the collage of pictures were stunning. And I said, keep it like very handy because there'll be days, especially when you have bipolar, from up to down. When you are down, just open your, your, your pictures, your own taking pictures, and see if they can 
sort of be your mood repairers. So mm. do folks do smaller things on a regular basis, change things rather than expect the world will do some things for you and, and you need X amount of money and change your boss and job. Mm. Which which sometimes I'm not saying is is also important. Yeah. Well, there's so many different areas. I I feel like this conversation just opened up where we can go down the section and savoring based on what you're saying in your book, or even when the hard times come, the work you've done in resilience. And I know you just came back from quite the trip. So maybe there's going to be a round two down the road, but I want to honor your time. There's a question I ask everybody at the end of the show. Let's imagine you're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch looking out at something that brings you peace. You feel content, you're calm, and you take out a notebook and decide to write what you learned on having a happy, healthy, and I'll throw in flourishing relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Um, And I'm going to borrow from one of my clients. And we have an exercise psychotherapy protocol. And uh, I worked with this young man. And there's actually the story of the case vignette is in my book. From verge of suicide, acutely suicidal ideation, to this point, everything happened between again, lots of issues, but let me get to, to the to your question. He attended one of our sessions, uh, group, positive psychology group intervention. And the last uh, exercise is, uh, and this is, uh, Sean, if I could remember what he said, because he wrote so profoundly, this, at that point, this person was about 22, I think less than that. And he wrote that without editing and gave me the permission to use without any identifying information in the book, that I would like to be remembered. So sitting in the back to your question, sitting in the porch, I would I would like this to be sort of my legacy, end of life, that I would like to be remembered as a person who changed the outer world by changing the inner worlds of people. Because I think there's so much more that to us that in inside us, and especially in the positive space. If I could change smidget in a world, who per se, this is a kind of a list, and then this is again not my I'm, I'm borrowing what I remember, who who cared for things that really mattered, who helped those who needed help and 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 couldn't sometimes ask for it, but needed help. And and most importantly. One of the things that I would like to be accomplished, and this is, I think I remember that hero, I cannot have a good legacy without healing my own self, without flourishing my own self. So I can, folks, you may think that, oh, this therapist talks nice and, you know, all of these things sounds wonderful. But think about it. Everything I'm, I'm talking is is just for a show. And I'm not living it. How terrible I would feel at the end of my life. So the thing that we started at the t- in the beginning of our talk, authenticity. I would like to be an authentic person, who's there was not much in Rogerian language 
radiating ethos, there's not much difference between real and the projected self. So, so I think that should be at the end of my life. In the words of my client, last but not least, and I, this was talking about uh, nature, I would like to leave the world slightly, slightly better than I found it. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, I guess the the rich life or the wealthy life is the authentic life to some degree. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing all your insights. Yeah, I really appreciated that. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. And if people are interested, I know you have a website. It's It still says Toronto. So I don't know if it's if I found the right website, but where would you point people towards if they're interested in the work you're doing, your book? My personal website would has uh, would have a which is very simple. Uh, my first and last name, so it's Tayyab uh, Rashid. T as in Tom. T A Y Y A B as in Bob. Rashid R A S H I D. Tayyabrashid.com. Lots of my work is there. Uh, you can also find me on the faculty page of University of Melbourne, where I'm currently. But folks, you, you, there's so much inside you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't worry uh, to find things. Find yourself. I, I very appreciate your message. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you're still listening to this episode, perhaps you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'm glad because I enjoyed it as well. And if that's the case, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. It really does help to support the show. Until next week, take care. I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sail